Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. Content for this episode was recorded on Friday, October 1st, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Jenna Robertson, a native of Wentzville, Missouri, and Democratic candidate running for state senator in the 2nd District of Missouri. She is currently the director of operations at her family's commercial janitorial and floor care company. She's also an alumna of Missouri Baptist University, where she studied biology and chemistry. And Jenna became a member of Mensa in 2013. So Jenna, welcome to Democracy on the Move, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Good. So uh, first things first, I want to get this out of the way because I know everybody's just dying to know this. Uh, why are you running? I mean, what compels you to subject yourself to torture and humiliation that all politicians go through on the on the campaign trail? Uh, it's it's pretty simple, and I know I've I have told this story about what initially when it, it got me to run, and that was the passing of HB 126. That was a lot for me to handle. It was a lot for anyone I know that is in favor of reproductive rights to handle. Mm -hmm. And Representative Schroer was a little too happy about it mm -hmm. for my liking. There was no grace. There was nothing, nothing humble about it. And I felt personally attacked. I know a lot of people did. And after that, came home, looked at my nieces and just thought, we can't keep doing this. My mother did this. You know, I'm out here having to do this. I don't want the next generation to have to worry about it. Well, what what is so, HB 126, just for the listening audience? It's, HB 126 is the Missouri for the for the Unborn Act. It is okay. what would limit would ban abortions before eight weeks of, of pregnancy, which is almost impossible to detect, especially if you have an irregular, you know, cycle as 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 a productive person. And that is unimaginable to someone to be in that situation to realize you had just missed a deadline and your life could be forever altered one way or the other with this. And mm -hmm. for such a gigantic issue to make so little of it and to be so passive and glib, what it, it was just a lot. And I had told myself as someone who lived in Winsville and that, well, when he did live in O'Fallon, uh, that I would never be able to challenge him to anything unless it was a bigger office. So when the opportunity arose that I knew he would be running for state Senate, which would be my district, I would have the opportunity to challenge him. Mm -hmm. And so as a woman of my word and someone with some integrity on, on this decision, I decided to go for it. It, it wasn't easy. I, I've been following all of this for a couple of years. This wasn't something I just decided to do for fun at the beginning of summer. I know what I'm up against. I know what I'm facing. And I am still all in it. I want to do this. I want to challenge him because I think even aside from HB 126, we have the SAPA. There's so many things. The challenges to our ballot initiatives, the challenge to LGBTQ rights that keep coming up and we need to take a stand against this, against this authoritarianism, against this theocracy, or we're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt, especially yeah. if you are not, you know, a white Christian male in Missouri. 
So I decided to step up and do it. And I know I'm putting a target on my back. I know this is not going to be easy. There's other people that have declared for the seat on the Republican side, such as Justin Hill and John Wyman. And none of them would be easy opponents. And I honestly wouldn't want to do it as much if they were going to be easy opponents because I want the challenge. I want to earn people's trust. I want to show them that just because there's a D behind my name, that I can still be in touch with the people. I still want the, the best for everyone. I want us to have the good schools, quality healthcare, good paying jobs, safe neighborhoods. Right. I just don't think that our way to do that is by stifling other humans. Right. There is, there is a definite trend toward authoritarianism in our nation. And <clears throat> there's uh, an interesting note I'd have. We, we talked with a guy named Jeff Ward uh, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast. He wrote this book, So You Want to Win a Local Election. And uh, I mean, this book is just jam-packed with all kinds of great advice about you know how to conduct your local election. In fact, I, re I recommend you take a look at it. But one of his biggest words of advice when, when you're running in these, in these types of elections is to not get entangled in national issues. So, you know, if you were to take that, vi that advice at face value, you would see you know, a lot of Republicans in these local elections clearly violating that principle. You know, it's almost like they become like Trump wannabes. To, and and to, to your point then about the uh, HB 126, there are a lot of other issues, too. There's things like uh, I think this is a bill that was uh, promoted by Senator Rick Bratton, who's out on the western edge of the state. And he, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he basically says, you can go ahead and run over a protester if you feel like it, right? Some guy's out there holding a Black Lives Matter sign, but if he steps in the street, well, protesters don't belong in the street, so just run him over. And mm -hmm. that's quite, uh, yeah, totalitarianism, I guess. It, it, they're also, they're also um, okay, was that dog on my end or is that your end? I'm so no, that was mine. I'm sorry. My Rott, that was my Rottweiler. <laughs> oh, your Rottweiler. Well, yeah. <laughs> tell your opponents to never meet you at your house with that Rottweiler sitting around. <laughs> I know. I'm, yes, I know. He's my he's my he's my guard dog for sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> so there's uh, so speaking of you know national issues, there's HB eighty five, which went into effect I think about a month ago, which declares that uh, federal gun regulations are are pretty much invalid in Missouri, and it could penalize police officers up to $50,000 if they cooperate with the feds in a way that seems to violate Missouri's interpretation of gun laws. And, you know, the result of all that is that federal prosecutors these days are saying that uh, several of their departments have stopped contributing to this database that helps the ATF link shootings across the nation. And this database itself has generated more than 6,000 investigative leads in Missouri in the last three years and identified 200 suspects. Uh, in the past uh, couple of years. So all this is sort of a, it is in alignment with a move toward authoritarianism in this country. And, and it's just, it violates, like I say, Jeff Ward's advice is don't get entangled in, 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 um, in national, uh, uh, national issues. But you're being pulled into this though, aren't you? I absolutely am. And I will get asked questions uh, about say the job that I'm trying to run for. And a lot of the questions I'm asked have to do with the federal level mm -hmm. and trying to explain to people that, yes, I have an opinion. Yes. I have researched, you know, as far as you can, I've read what articles I, I have, you know, all of those things, but it's not relevant to the job that I am currently running for. And I think that people have gotten so used to the outlandish rhetoric mm -hmm. 
trying to solicit reactions, trying to get the rage likes and the retweets and the social media because people need to rage to get acknowledged, and which is another sad point. But I'm concentrated on Missouri. I can get pulled into to federal and national issues. Of course, we all have opinions on those and what we'd like to see done, but that's not the job I'm running for. I'm worried about Missourians and I'm worried about the state of Missouri. So trying to still address those issues, knowing that they do filter down to us in the state, but try to keep us on track can be challenging because I really am doing this for Missouri. I'm not doing it for the next job or the next election. Mm-hmm. When I win and when I'm elected, I will serve for that term that I was elected. If we have a chance to pass a fantastic piece of legislation for this state that I know is going to work for everyone and it's popular and it means I won't get reelected, I'm okay with that because I'm elected for this term. I'm not going for attorney general. I'm not going for auditor. I'm not going for governor, anything like that. I am here to serve for what I was elected to do. And I feel that that has gotten overlooked by the other side. It's just one soundbite after another with nothing actually being done. I mean, if you look at the past legislative session for 2021, what did they actually do besides SAPA? Yeah. There wasn't, yeah, there, there really was. And, and that's what I'm saying. How much money did we invest in their salaries and their per diems and all the write-offs and all of the, you know, for this five months of legislation season, they're not performing for us, but they are very good at their messaging. They're very good at keeping people outraged and keeping them fearful. And there's really no need to be. There's nothing out there that we cannot accomplish together if we're willing to work together. And that's that's what we need to do. We need some levity. We need some humility. And we need people. We don't need sound bites. We don't need people trying to get on Fox News or OAN or Newsmax or try to garner the attention of former president trump and that's not helpful to us they're living in the past let's live in the present so we can live in the future yeah i think people are tired of it um and we get enough of that uh, entertainment at the national level and people are sort of you know tired of it and perhaps they expect it at the national level but at the local level you know you're you're dealing with other things at the local level i know one of the things that's on your list of um, in, in your platform is the CAFOs, the, that's the Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, I think is that is the, what that means. And it's basically Correct. these factory farms. And um, it, it's interesting to me that a party that talks a lot about local control seems to do just the opposite at the, uh, at the state level. I'm speaking specifically about SB 391, which is the uh, Senate Bill 391 back in 2019 which took away local control, in your words here, took away local control to adopt restrictions against the concentrated animal feeding operations that are more stringent than Missouri state laws. So what it basically means is that if you have a factory farm setting up in your county and polluting your groundwater and polluting your streams and you can no longer use the streams, you can no longer draw water out of your groundwater because it's basically poop. Right from from this from a, from a big animal farm next door, and they and so you go to your county and say, "Hey, county health department, you need to do something about this," and they just at this point they just threw up their hands and say, "Well, SB three ninety one prevents us from doing this." And that that is correct. the The whole issue of local control 
it seems to conveniently only exist on, on paper as a platform point for the Republicans in this state. And referring back to, to, to the CAFO, we have, I, I know it's only 500 of the 95,000 farms in Missouri, but to the people that are around those 500, that is a lot. Their, their water's being polluted. On top of the fact that we are selling land in Missouri to Smithfield and to JBS who are Chinese and Brazilian controlled. Mm -hmm. right. So if we, if we want to be America first, you know, then maybe we should be supporting our local farmers a little better yeah. instead of making all these caveats for these foreign owned companies. And it's small now, but what's to stop them from growing? Well, actually, want... they, yeah, it has happened up in Iowa. I think they've, I don't know how many farms they have <clears throat> up in Iowa, but they've pretty much ruined uh, a large chunk of that state with these factory farms. Right. They'll come in, they'll do that. They'll, they will, they will rape all of our natural resources and contaminate them. And then they'll pull up stakes and leave. And then the groundwater is left polluted for the people left behind the citizens of Missouri, the people that we represent and serve yeah. and to throw them to the side for, for what, probably some lobbyist money, you know, selling your soul. Is that, is that really, is that really worth it? Yeah. And if you're willing to do all that for just say 500 farms, imagine what they do if they wanted to say take 50% of the farms. And in Wentzville, we have a contingent on the western side of our city that borders Forestell that is still farmland, that is still some of the original families from Wentzville. And I have spoken with them and a lot of them are so tired and frankly pissed off about the developers, and this is with housing, with the developers and even the city, they're being pressured on a two front to, to try and sell their property. And the whole reason they lived out here was to be left alone. Mm -hmm. So they do not want big, you know, big corporations, large residential areas coming to spoil their land. And I feel this is the same situation with our rural areas in Missouri. They just want to farm. They want to do an honest day's work. They want their children to have a good education. They, they want to thrive. They want to live that American dream. And by rescinding local control with our school boards, you know, everything they're trying, the attorney general stepping in for all that they preach on local control in America first, they just are not living their values and trying to point out that hypocrisy, uh, to friendly minded people is a little easier than say people that maybe were raised Republicans that, you know, all things being equal, they're just going to fall to the side of the Republican ticket. And I have actually used the phrase that, you know, they're the devil that, you know, and yeah. that was actually pretty well received from the people that I spoke with. They're like, I, I suppose that's an accurate depiction. Yes. It's the devil that we know. And when they talk about the, you know, the condition of our state, you know, I have to remind them, who has been in power in Jeff City, who has had super majorities. So if you're complaining about what laws are, are being enacted, what rights are being challenged, it's that it's that party. Yeah. The Democrats don't really have what we can try to disrupt, <clears throat> excuse me, in Congress up there and Moleg, but we have to pull Republicans to our side. So I have to gently remind people that if you're unhappy with the state of the state, just look at who has been in power and what they've done and if they've lived their values. Yeah. And frankly, they, they have not. Yeah. I mean, I, many, many years ago, used to be a Republican and I dropped out actually during the, during the end of the Reagan era, I, I, I saw what was going on and I um, just dropped out because they aren't really staying true to their, to their original conservative principles. 
And it's just uh, surprising me how much worse it's gotten. I want to go back a little bit, uh, circle back on you talked about initiatives. And I'd like to talk a little bit about ballot initiatives. I did a little bit of research on this, and, and I've known about this for a while, that Missouri is one of, uh, I think it's like 26 states in the union that actually supports ballot initiatives and veto referendums, which is, I think, kind of a progressive idea. But um, I have some other thoughts as well. But uh, just for everyone's education, a ballot initiative is a way for ordinary citizens to organize and put an issue on the ballot for general election. And the issue can then become a state statute or a constitutional amendment. Uh, veto referendums operate in a similar way. They allow people to you know, organize and create ballot measures. But in this case, voters get to decide whether or not to uphold or repeal a law that was previously passed by the state legislature. So all that behind us now, the ballot initiatives recently have been pretty successful in many ways, legalizing medical marijuana recently, overturning right-to-work laws, expanding eligibility for Medicaid, which started another street fight, actually, and and Clean Missouri also, which was a measure that included redistricting reforms uh, set to go in effect after the 2020 census. So all these initiatives must have gotten under the skin of the current legislature. So what they're trying to do now is scale back the avail- availability of these of these initiatives by requiring um, making it, basically setting the, har- the, the, the bar much higher on, in terms of the number of petition signatures needed to push these uh, initiatives and and referendums forward. And it also, if I'm reading this correctly, it also allows individuals such as judges the power to reword the writing on the ballots and providing an opportunity for them to obfuscate and confuse the voter, which is what I think they actually did on Clean Missouri, because Clean Missouri passed in 2018, and then it was clawed back in 2020, just in time for the census. So what's uh, what's your take on voter initiatives and veto referendums? I am actually a huge proponent of ballot initiatives, because I thoroughly believe that all power to all the people, I I firmly believe that our electeds are sent to serve us and represent us. And that is all we're asking them to do. So when we do ballot initiatives, it's usually in response to them not listening to us Mm -hmm. or even possibly dragging their feet. So this is, you know, the show me state, the Missouri way, we want something done, we step up and do it. So with the ballot initiatives, like with clean Missouri, they, the only difference they did when they brought that back was and they sold it well. The lobbyist gift was already at no more than $5, I believe, or 10. Yeah. And all they did was take that back down to five or 10. And they put the first two points on there as what they already were. And then the third point, which is where the judge had kind of stepped in and said the language was shaky and it was confusing, which it was, but they put that third. So people read the first two and didn't bother reading the third point yeah. for the most part, at least most people I talked to did. And then if you did read it, you didn't know if you should vote yes or no. Like, how does, what does this mean? How do you understand this? Yeah. And they actually, because of clean Missouri, they are trying to challenge judges rewriting language on ballot initiatives. What they want to do is instead of judges having, you know, the authority to do that, they would rather have a judge come back and say, no, you just need to rewrite all of it. Mm-hmm. And they intentionally mislead and write things confusing because they have to. There was no reason to overturn clean Missouri other than we we're right before a census and they have to worry about, you know, what their districts are going to look like and how, how can they better 
situate themselves to draw these lines. It's also clear, I think, if you look at it from the outside, mm -hmm. what is going on. I mean, they're, they're telling us out loud what they're doing, what their playbook is, and they're following through on it. I will, I will hand them that. But it's, it's so confusing and disheartening to the democratic process. Yeah. But with the ballot initiatives themselves, like with Medicaid expansion, uh, with the medical cannabis, these are all things we told them we wanted. And they didn't want to listen or again, it got caught up in the cog machine. You have your lobbyists, all these people that want to put their, you know, two cents in on how everybody's going to make money and distribute licenses. And we just stepped in. We had people write, write the bill language. Uh, in fact, my mother and I helped collect signatures for it to get it on the ballot. And lo and behold, it passed. Of course it passed. People understand the medicinal value of this plant. And they mm -hmm. also understand that people sitting in jail for their for the rest of their life is a little harsh. Yeah. Yes. You're talking about you're and, talking about people that got sent up for possession? Correct. Yes. Oh. Um they will be sent up for I, I believe it was it used to be 25 grams or under. I mean, you're talking felonies, misdemeanors. Um, putting them in the system that they have this mark where it's almost impossible for them to get a job. And then if you're in the system, once you get out, you know, you're, you're dealing with another arm of it uh, with being on parole or probation. And when you're doing that, that, that all costs money. You have yeah. to pay for your probation officer. You have to pay for urine tests. You have to do it. So there is just this financial incentive wow. to come down hard on people that are in the system. And this applies to, it doesn't even have to be marijuana. It could be it could be DUIs, you know, anything of that system when you're on paroles, probations, you pay out of pocket. And I feel like maybe not, not enough people understand that. So it is, it, it really that's, that's takes crazy. a toll on people. Yes. It that's, really takes um, a toll on people who are financially disadvantaged already. Yeah. Yes. And that's the, with the bail system uh, in place. And it's not just Missouri either. Uh, people go to jail for whatever charge it is. And while they're awaiting trial, uh, they have to make bail in order to get out of jail to get back to their job or get back to their family. And mm -hmm. uh, this is a phenomenon we discussed on a previous podcast. But what, what happens in those situations is that people either have to find the money for bail or they could plead guilty and then have a record follow them around for the rest of their life, whether or not they were guilty. Or they can just sit in jail and then lose their jobs. And um, this is a trap that a lot of people on the lower end of the economic scale fall into and they can never get out. And you told me something very interesting here. I didn't realize that when you're out on probation, you have to pay for your for your services that you're getting, the urine tests and pay for the probation officer. Um, where do they expect you to get the money for this kind of stuff? That's it's uh, like a self-perpetuating cycle. And that, yeah. that is the cycle of our criminal justice system. A lot of people in these situations are already economically disadvantaged. Right. And then they're taking on I, I, I'm not condoning what put them in that situation by any means. But there are very many layers to consider this to consider to this, that if you put them in these situations, then they have to have this money. And then the the big component of staying, you know, part of your probation is maintaining employment. Mm -hmm. And if you have all of these marks or they're, they're putting you, you know, away because you can't afford bail, you know, especially on a minor charge, you're stuck there, you lose your job, you get out, then no one will hire you. Or in the instance, say that you have a DUI, understand why we lose driving privileges. But in areas such as rural or even say St. Charles, where we don't have public transportation, your other choices 
maybe rideshare, which is expensive. Yeah. So the, once you find yourself in that hamster wheel in the criminal justice system, it's really hard to get off it. And that's why we have such a high recidivism rate. Yeah. And I'm not talking about rewarding people for their misbehavior. I'm simply saying we should understand that sometimes people make mistakes. Humans are not perfect, but if they're striving and they're willing to learn from that lesson and correct things and really want to get back into contributing to society, we should make that easy. We should not tell them, no, you are just a pariah for the rest of your life because you got caught with a half an ounce of marijuana. Yeah. And that's what we're doing right now. And it's just, it's not economically viable. It's not good for society. And this is not, this is just talking about them. This isn't even addressing people who maybe can't drive or can't find a job, what it does to their families. They have to take them to these parole or probation meetings. They have to take them to these testing areas for all of this, which means they're taking time away from their job and their family. Right. And, so, and so when you're making decisions, just blankets, you know, like with the Second Amendment Preservation Act, it seems like there's no forethought of how this is going to trickle down. And that's where I come in. I'm a detail-oriented person. I think that we could probably address a lot of these issues if we just use some of our humanism and said, okay, yeah. let's see what we can do to help these people learn from their mistake without endangering the rest of the community. And I don't understand why that's viewed as such a um, softy snowflake lefty liberal ideology. It's actually quite fiscally responsible and yeah. it's personally responsible. It's everything that the other side preaches, but doesn't actually enact. And yeah. that's where I want to find that spot. I could certainly make an argument for being uh, for it being a conservative principle for saving money. Uh, we it, quite some time ago we had a discussion with Bobby Bostic, and you and I talked about him before the show. Now he's uh, he's sitting in uh, prison in Jefferson Jefferson City for a, a crime he committed when he was 16. He's now I believe by now he's 42. Until recent legislation was passed. Uh, he would, would not be eligible for parole till he, till he was 112 years old. And it was a firearm offense when he was 16, so among other things. But he told us during this interview, he said, you know, it costs the state, I don't know how much it was, I think it was like $47,000 a year to keep him in prison. I tend to think it's more than that. In, in these situations, it actually costs a lot of money to keep this hamster wheel going as opposed to just trying to actually do what the corrections facility is supposed to do, and that is correct our behavior and get mm -hmm. us back into society as as uh, contributors to society. Uh, we could do a whole podcast on that. And I've actually done podcasts on this before. It's it's one of my pet peeves. But I want to move on to something else here. Uh, we, we, uh, we touched a little bit on voting rights, I think. Maybe it was before we started talking. But anyways, I want to touch a little bit about voting rights because your website states, uh, we as Missourians should make every attempt to provide easy access to voting, expand no excuse absentee, vote by mail, use a group of volunteer notaries if notary requirements stay in place. For the the uh, For the People Act passed on the federal level would allow would would stop extreme right conservatives from suppressing the vote. Voting should be the easiest things Americans can do. Can you comment on that a little bit? Because I have some uh, some some interesting uh, ideas about it. Absolutely. I, I think we probably all have some very good ideas about <laughs> it. I, I know that 
the Secretary of State Ashcroft had suggested that he wants Molag to take up legislation governing voter ID and its application towards state absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, is I'm actually a notary and I did volunteer. I signed up through um, Eli Gross's website to volunteer to notarize absentee ballots for the 2020 elections because of COVID. And when they would bring me or anybody, when anyone brings me anything to notarize, ID is actually already required. Mm -hmm. The only exception is if I know someone personally, you know, a a friend, family member, someone that I have history with that I can verify their identity. So voter ID or general government ID is already required for absentee. And I have also actually been an election judge. I was an election judge for all of 2020. So when you come in to vote, you do not have to have your license, but in order to register to vote, you have to have proof of residency, your government ID. So mm-hmm. it's kind of taking that step out. We will still take licenses. It makes it super simple to scan on the on the barcode reader. Mm-hmm. Simple enough. My concern with the voter ID, again, just making blankets legislation and not thinking about down the road how that affects people. Yeah. Again, rural areas or suburban areas where there's not a lot of public transportation or they are closing down DMVs. We are seeing this in the Southern states, particularly Alabama and Mississippi, that they're passing these voter ID laws. They are to, so it makes it harder for people to obtain one or it's not so easy for them to get off work. There's just so many things that filter down if you think about it to get that voter ID, taking time off work, making sure you have someone to watch your children if you have them. Uh, how to get to the polling place, how to obtain the ID. We can make it so easy for people to obtain IDs. If we set up something says, hey, you know, let us know your work schedule because there are people who will volunteer. There are organizations that will make sure this happens because there are very good people in this state. Mm -hmm. We will make sure you get that voter ID. Then comes the next challenge on voter day, which I had said, and I believe the current administration had said we would like to make general elections national holidays i don't understand why they're not already so that is what i mean when we have they say just voter id that's very simple to say yeah there's so many people that have the privilege of just having that id well it's it's actually in a sense it's a poll tax too right because you have to produce all this documentation you have to take off work but I, i i if you go to the dmv and just ask for an id do they charge you anything for that or is that free there there is actually a program out there that if, if you have not had an ID, if say you haven't had any identification, I believe it's two or three years, that if you go to the DMV, they will actually give you one for free. They will assist you and pay for you, pay for you to get access to your birth certificate, your social security card, things you need to get that ID and to keep it current. Mm-hmm. So these things are out there. That, but then you still, again, have to address getting people to have the availability of the transportation to be able to do all of this stuff. Sure. So it's you can get bogged down in the details, but the details are very easily surmountable. We just have to want to do it. And I want to do it. Yeah, I'm sure you want to do it. The people who are only winning because people are not voting do not want to do it. It's just another hurdle. And I don't know if they're doing it intentionally or not. But the fact that if they aren't doing it intentionally, people are telling them that these are the obstacles we're facing because you put that there. So they cannot claim ignorance. Yeah. So that circles back around again to it comes across as intentional. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't doubt it is intentional. 
I mean, it, when 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 it becomes more important to win an election rather than to actually work for the people, when the party becomes more important than your constituents, yeah, then it's it makes sense, it makes perfect sense. That's the only thing. That's the only story that fits the data, as far as I'm concerned. But here's something a little bit more significant. And I was gonna I was gonna throw throw this idea at you. There's there are three organizations. One's called the States United Democracy Center. Another one's called Protect Democracy, and the third one's called Law Forward. These are three nonpartisan organizations that focus on protecting democracy and ensuring free and fair elections. So last April, they produced a report, and the report is called A A Democracy Crisis in the Making. And I'm actually going to post a link to that report because I think it's very important. They, uh, They imply, and this is my words, but this report implies that the obsession over voting rights might be a bit of a red herring because it distracts from a far more insidious form of anti-democracy. And that more insidious form would be that uh, there are state laws in 36 states across the nation, including Missouri, that have introduced bills that allow state legislatures to, quote, politicize, criminalize, or interfere with elections. And so in short, the the fear is that the state legislatures are angling to put themselves into the position of overriding the will of the voters in their states based on what they feel might be a fraudulent election and basically throw a panel of electors into the presidential race that are not supported by a majority of their voters. They're essentially trying to push their man by, you know, by selecting their own electors based on false evidence or false ideas throwing a, a presidential election. Like I said, we'll provide a, a link to this to this report, but what's your sense on that? Do you have any input on that at all? Uh, I was, for fun, every once in a while, I will look through the Missouri Secretary of State under their elections and voting, and they have what referendums, initiatives, you know, signature collecting, what has been approved, what's going to be circulating. Mm-hmm. And I actually found one. I'm going, I'm going blank on the name of it right now, but I had shared it. But part of what they are... Um, part of what these citizens are collecting signatures for is, and I will tell you, I'll read it to you. It says, Mm -hmm. do you want to amend the Missouri constitution to eliminate using machines to count and calculate votes, require votes to be counted by hand by the judgment of the human eye, require state issued ID, uh, restrict early voting to only 14 days. They also want to allow observers inside and outside polling stations to take pictures. And then this is my favorite one. Allow the state general assembly to adjust or void any totals it determines appropriate in presidential elections and then create the crime of treason against persons for voter fraud, failure to report results timely and certain poll worker actions. So these are citizens. And as someone who's worked with ballot initiatives and collect signatures and understands the workings, we know how expensive it is to collect signatures. Mm -hmm. So I don't imagine this language necessarily came up unhelped by uh, maybe some other sources or organizations. Mm-hmm. So we know this is coming. We know Missouri would be more than happy to overturn the will of the people. They do it all the time. They fight against us. They don't listen. Yeah. So this is a huge attack on democracy for people to sell us this, to, to stoke this fear, to sow distrust in our elections which is ironic considering that they're so gung-ho on running for elections, right? I mean, if I didn't believe in the process, I wouldn't participate. So we know it's a farce. We know it's a red herring. And they're throwing this out there and through the back door, either themselves or through private citizens, 
they are introducing this legislation. And I, I would not be surprised if they managed to collect enough signatures to get it on the ballot. Wow. So it is our, yes, it is our job to communicate that this is what this means. And this sounds great when it benefits you, but the chickens are going to come home to roost on this. And when the chickens come home to roost, they're not just going to poop on the left side. They're going to poop all over both sides and Mm -hmm. we're all going to be screwed. And then we won't have the power unless we use the veto ballot initiative to do so, which coming back to ballot initiatives, they are trying to make harder. They're raising from 8% to 10%. I've heard from eight to 12%. I've also heard there's another one that instead of doing two thirds of the congressional districts, which is six out of the eight, they want us to do all eight. All of them, yeah. yeah. All eight. And then there's another one that says, even if you do all that, they actually, you have to get a majority of the votes cast in each house of representative district. So if it doesn't pass, say in, in O'Fallon and one house district 107 by the majority that nullifies every other con- congressional, or I'm sorry, state house district, representative yeah. district. So they're doing everything possible to make this harder to override us. And yeah. that's not what we are. We, we were, we're a democracy. That's why we go and fight and send our soldiers across the globe to fight for democracy. Right. Meanwhile, they're killing it here at home. Yeah. And it's too much. It is. And it's, uh, there, there's this thing called the For the People Act. And, and I know you write a little bit about it on your, on your website there. But uh, there is a lot of people saying, well, it's unconstitutional for the federal government to step in and do this. And I'd have to say, no, Article 1, Section 4 specifically states that Congress may at any time by law make or alter regulations related to voting. But I hate to see this happen, right? Because, because states like Missouri, who are trying to consolidate their power and guarantee their power by basically... Uh, manipulating votes or by basically throwing away votes or nullifying votes, it pushes the envelope and, and it almost pushes the federal government into a, back them into a corner to actually exercise Article 1, Section 4 of the, of the U.S. Constitution to go in and say, okay, now everybody's going to be working off the same sheet of music. Screw you know, the, the fact that these states are trying to um, overturn votes or they're trying to prevent people from voting. I hate to see this happen because, you know, we're, we're famously a decentralized sort of government, but it's becoming more and more centralized as time goes on. It has. Uh, and I'm not sure if, you know, it's a chicken and egg scenario. scenario. Mm-hmm. Is the federal government pushing the states because the states are becoming authoritarian or are the states becoming authoritarian because the federal government's pushing too much? And I feel like you fall on one side of that base probably on how you identify politically. And I, as a devil's advocate, can completely understand that. Am I worried, you know, or do I understand why Republicans are worried about us stifling their rights or with the vaccine and mass mandates, why they're fighting so hard as a personal, on the side of personal freedom, completely missing the point on, on public health ordinances. Right. The reason I understand why they're pushing so hard for this and under, you know, why they're so fearful is because they're, they're, they're doing it to us, especially mm-hmm. to with our reproductive rights and our voting rights. They know it's possible. And that's why they're so rightfully fearful of it happening to them because mm-hmm. they know it's possible. And that's why we need people in there that can be reasonable, that can still be true 
to their opinions and their issues and how they feel about things, but can still understand that maybe reasonable compromise can be made. We need to tone it down. We need adults back in the room. There's just too many people screaming at each other and it's overwhelming. We're all starting to put our fingers in our ears and like, la, 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 because mm. it's a lot. Yeah. We're also busy in our regular lives. We don't want this crap. You know, we want to trust the people we're sending to Jeff City. We don't want to be engaged on on social media constantly about politics. It's done nothing but divide us. And the yeah. past five years have been a real wake up call. Yeah. But that hits upon another concept. And you and I talked about it just before I click the uh, record button here. And that is how to how how do Democrats relate to the voters versus how do the Republicans relate to the voters? And it is very tribal. Uh, one of the problems in Missouri here, as well as most of the other Midwestern states, they call them flyover states for a reason because they feel that they're just being disregarded, looked down upon from way up, you know, 30,000 feet up. Who are those people down there? I don't know. Let's disregard them. You know, people feel that way. But the Republicans, I think, in a sense, they get it, right? They can talk to people and the Democrats seem to just fly over them. So what's your approach to not flying over people, to engaging with people and telling them, hey, you know, Democrats will listen to you too. Uh, forget about history, right? I mean, we're, 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 it's a new Democratic Party now. So what's your approach in that? The simplest approach I have is just to listen. I, I don't need to lecture anyone. I don't need to be lectured. A lot of us are pretty firm where we're at, but we need to listen to each other. And listening would solve so many issues in this country. I mean, not just politics, but in in racial discrimination, you know, systemic racism, um, what our concerns are with CRT. Everything has just been hyper-partisan. And when I speak with people individually, I listen to their concerns. I don't doubt them. I don't negate them. I try to, especially if I know them personally, and it's kind of an advantage if I know of a situation in their life that applies to what they're saying, but in the opposite way, then I can say, okay, you know how this one time in your life, you had this happen, you had this person there to help or those people that could, you know, teach you this. Mm -hmm. Just if, if you can really connect with people on a personal level and gain that trust and know that when you present a situation or even your own personal experience, they're more likely to engage. And you may not change anyone's minds or hearts or even right off the bat, but you're at least planting a seed and you're letting them know that you're listening. It's not just about wedge issues. It's, it's not just about economics and jobs. I mean, all of those are given, but I will say that former president Trump did a really good job of tapping into people who felt very unheard. No. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of what they should or shouldn't be heard about any of that stuff. That's, that's, social media fodder, but he gave them a voice. And that is all people want, regardless of what side they fall on politically. We want to think that we're participating, that when we're, we are sending in our taxes to help pay for these programs, that we have a voice in it and that we're not being ignored. No. And that's what I want to do. I want to serve. I want to listen. Yeah. And that's what I plan to do. Have you ever heard of that group? And this is kind of a side note here, a group called Braver Angels. We had them on the podcast here uh, in August. 
Um, I don't know that I have. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a national citizens movement that was uh, launched uh, a few years ago for the purpose of bringing liberals and conservatives and others together at the grassroots level. And uh, it echoes pretty much what you said. I mean, it's not to find a centrist compromise, but to find one another as citizens, you know, and, and restore that basic trust in each other and trust in our fellow American. And one of the things you hit upon CRT, one of my observations is that people get very offended when you call them racist, right? And I, I honestly believe most people aren't racist, at least not consciously. But there are subconscious things that are going on underneath the underneath the uh, surface, and and one of my challenges, and we'll, we'll talk about CRT with education. One of my questions is, how do you teach history unless you talk about racism, and 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 it's how the role it's played throughout history, including right right up to the present day, and how do you teach civics without mentioning how racism has worked its way into our laws, and I think a lot of people would take offense to that because they probably don't realize how things have been set up for, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about uh, people of color. I'm talking about, you know, your white suburbanite. They don't have that other perspective. And it really requires someone such as yourself. And we talked, we talked to Spencer Toter last week about this as well to uh, reach out and say, no, I'm not calling you names. I'm not calling you stupid. I'm just saying there's some things I want to, to be aware of, and I want also some to make to have you make me aware of some things, and that all goes back to trust. Absolutely. When I have, I mean, obviously, I have very strong opinions and a worldview uh, as far as systemic racism, so yeah, all of those subjects. Uh, I have my own opinions and views, and what I believe to be the truth. That is not helpful when I'm speaking to someone that maybe doesn't share those views or that life experience or exposure. Mm-hmm. Do I think that makes them a bad person? Absolutely not. I will be more than happy to talk to anyone about it. And I actually have reached out to people and talked to them. I I want you to talk to me with a different worldview and experience, knowing that we probably aren't seeing eye to eye, which is why we're having the conversation. But I want to be a safe space for people to come and ask their questions. Because I think that the word racist has been, well, accurately used in certain situations has been used to weaponize Mm -hmm. certain things like it's it's just an immediate conversation stopper so if you say someone's a racist or you get called a racist like it just stops the conversation and i think that's kind of where it's getting misappropriated and what i like to tell people is if you have any questions i will not advertise this i'm not going to post about it if you are genuinely just curious but you're scared of being called a racist because you're so defensive and being bombarded by what a racist is, mm-hmm. then come talk to me. I will be more than happy to have this conversation. It will stay between you and I. And you know, I'm about 50-50 on it. I, I, there's people that I've spoken with that will say, I, you know, I, I get your explanation. I, I see where you're coming from. I just don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. But they're civil about it. And I've had people that have said that have come back and said, I know I said this, but I have kind of started to notice a few things. And the hardest obstacle to get over with all of that is our own egos and our own self-awareness. Because mm-hmm. no one wants to think that about themselves. They don't want to think they're propping up white supremacy or anything like that. Right. And trying to differentiate 
what people seem to think when you say racist or white supremacy, you know, explaining, I'm not saying you're wearing a white pointed hat and burning crosses. I'm saying there are certain systems in place that we are actively upholding consciously or subconsciously. And when you point that out, it's overwhelming. It's yeah. a lot to handle. And we've had a lot in the past five years with COVID, this past administration, even this current administration, it's tough. And people are overwhelmed. It's just one more one more straw on that camel's back. And, and I understand why people don't want to deal with it, but no. that's their privilege. And addressing that is something else as well, but I'm here for it. Please come talk to me. Please send me a DM, send me a Facebook message, send me an email, call me. I am more than willing to have a conversation with anybody about this. I want them to feel that it's a safe place to ask their questions. Good. And I will do that to the best of my ability. Well put. And I think, you know, social media, as you're talking about this, I think social media has a lot to do with the way that we view the world. And one thing I've noticed in Twitter, I have a Twitter feed, you've read it, and I've read your Twitter, all of our feeds. But anyways, what I'm, what I'm finding out is that when I say something out there that is somewhat controversial, I get all these ad homonyms, you know, the name calling, they try to win their argument by calling me names. You know, you can call somebody a racist. Well, that's an ad hominem, really, because that's not really who they are. Mm -hmm. um, but I go back, you know, to me, it's a challenge when somebody calls me a name or, or tries to diss me in some way or another. I'll go back and say, look, I really understand you. You have an issue that's important to you. Let's talk about this. And every single time people will come back and they'll talk to me in a more civil mm -hmm. way. And we don't come to an agreement, of course. That's not my objective, uh, probably not their objective either. But at least we're reaching out, right? And we're coming to an understanding with, with each other. And social media does not promote this type of behavior. I do it on Twitter because I want to, I want to, you know, connect with people. But if you start calling them ad, ad hominems, you start, you know, saying they're racist or something like that, it's not going to do anything. It may, maybe it makes you feel better in the moment for calling somebody a, a name that really doesn't apply to them. But uh, it, it completely destroys trust. So I really get into what you're saying there. It, 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 uh, you have to talk. And you may not come to an agreement. You may at the end have to agree to disagree. Fine. You know, but at least you understand each other and have some mutual respect for each other. Absolutely. I, I feel we've really lost the art of civil discourse. Yeah. And there, I mean, and I, I'm just as guilty as the next person. There's some things that I will go off about. Um, I generally try to steer away from calling people names, mm -hmm. but I have some very strong opinions on things, but I have found that when you try to talk and listen and discuss, people do want to talk. Yeah. They don't want to just be called or call someone a name. It, it's, it shuts down the conversation and reduces our chances for personal growth. Yeah. We have to be able to admit that we don't know everything. We're not always right. I, I will say that, 95% of my confidence comes from the fact that I can admit I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. So I will find out I'm willing to listen. I, I am willing to watch videos, read articles you send me as suggestions. I will entertain it. And then we can discuss it and see where we're at after all of that and say, okay, well, I understand this or I don't understand that. But it's just, yes, the constant attacks on each other while immediately are gratifying. I kind of walk away feeling like less of a person, almost kind of dirty, like, yeah. man, I lost my control. This was not beneficial. And honestly, the best thing you can do is try to start the conversation, just disarm people, 
I think people are just really tired of being pissed off all the time. Yeah. And it's our knee-jerk reaction. Engage with people. Engage with everyone that you can. Get to, that's why we're a community. We commune. We get to know each other. That's why we're willing to bend over backwards and make certain kind of exceptions for people we know that we would hold someone else's feet to the fire. The only difference is we know that person, we know their story, we know their background, and we know if they're going through a tough time. Yeah. Right now, we're expecting perfection from everyone. And I'm sorry, it's just not possible. And we're going to drive ourselves crazy trying to do it. No. Yeah. Good. Well put. So let's wrap this up here. I want to uh, get people uh, give people an idea of how they can get involved or help you out. What is your uh, how do people get involved with your with your efforts toward the Missouri State Senate and what can they do? Where can they go? Uh, uh, my website is www.jennaformissouri, all spelled out. I have a contact button on that page, and I also have my email, which is Jenna at JenniferMissouri.com. My Twitter handle is at Jenna4Missouri, F-O-R-M-O. My Facebook handle is at Jenna4Missouri with the, le- the number four and M-O. Those are the best ways to reach me. I am always open. I, like I said, I will respond to DMs, to, to, direct, to any sort of messaging, emails. Contact me any way you can. I will respond, and it will always be me responding. And yeah. moving forward, we will have volunteer opportunities as soon as we start moving into that area, and I would appreciate any and all help that I could get. Perfect. And, and it's www.jenna4missouri.com. And Jenna for Missouri, Jenna for Missouri is all one word and it's spelled out. F-O-R is spelled out. So it's not the number four. It's Jenna for Missouri. Perfect. And um, before we do the outro here, I want to ask you <laughs> two more questions. Is it Missouri or Missouri? Well, for me, it is Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> I feel like the state's divided in thirds. Like we have Missouri, Missouri, and then I've heard people say Missouri as well. And I never know if they're being sarcastic or not. But for me, it's Missouri. Okay. <laughs> I looked it up in a dictionary some time ago and it said either one. So fine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so one more question here is, um, do, you, do you wash your dishes or do you wash your dishes? Oh, I do not have the R and I actually don't wash dishes. My partner, Chris, does that. He is the world's <laughs> most amazing man, by the way. I don't think I could compliment him enough. So Chris um, washes the dishes or does he wash the dishes? He, well, he's at, he's from Southeast Missouri. So he's actually kind of says washes. So it's kind of <laughs> like washes, but without the R with like the, the A draw. But, uh, but yeah, he's, he's the world's most perfect man. So yeah. whatever he says is fine by me. Oh gosh, that's funny. I used to say wash all the time too. Then uh, my first job uh, in high school was uh, working as a dishwasher at um, at International House of Pancakes, and so wash the dishes. And like, what does wash mean? <laughs> so I had to get used to that. <laughs> yes, I know. I do know people that do say wash. Um, my stepbrothers growing up, they're from South City. They would say wash, and they were actually the first people I knew that said it. And I, they caught me off guard. I was like, Warsh. Yeah. Was, what does that mean? I was wondering, like, have I been saying this wrong the entire time? Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, but no, I mean, either way, just like with how you say Missouri, yeah. I know what you mean. I don't need to correct you like an uppity person. <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> you're flexible. You're flexible. Yeah. My, my stepmom's yes. the same way. She grew up out on a farm out uh, her younger years, which she was out on a farm in uh, St. Charles County. And uh, so she, you know, she's in her 80s now, but she still says Warsh. <laughs> so I've had to get used to it. Okay. 
So we've been talking with Jenna Robertson, Democratic candidate for the state Senate seat, District Number 2. Jenna, thank you for joining us today, and I had really enjoyed speaking with you, and I wish you good luck and lots of success in your campaign for the Senate. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to serving the people of Missouri. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you would like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode.